Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, James Rada and Richard Fulton, the authors of The Last of All. Our guests are Richard Fulton and James Rada, and they are the authors of this book, The Last to Fall, the 1922 March Battles and Deaths of U.S. Marines at Gettysburg. Your book is uh, dedicated to Captain George Hamilton and Gunnery Sergeant George Martin. We'll start with you. What, who are they? Those were the two Marines who were killed uh, during the time the Marines were up at Gettysburg during the reactment. Their plane crashed near where the Wax Museum, or the they, it's called the Heritage Center, is now. And um, one of them died on impact, and the other one died on the way to the uh, hospital. And since they, since they were active duty Marines, they were doing uh, their summer exercises, their summer maneuvers that summer, and they're considered line of duty deaths, which is where the... Um, last to fall comes from because they're the last line of duty deaths on the battlefield at Gettysburg. How did you find out about this event, this exercise in the first place? We, uh, my wife and I started uh, maybe 10 years ago just saving pictures of what we thought was Col Colt Park, which was Eisenhower's uh, facility where he trained the, uh, the Army Corps in the beginning, in the teens. And as we began to accrue photos, Something didn't fit. You know, it was all military, it was all in the battlefield, but something else was going on in those photographs other than Camp Colt. So by the time we moved to Gettysburg about 10 years ago, we began to sort of get a, an idea that this was a different event and uh, did a little research, found out that this was a Marine maneuver and reenactment, and just began to accrue photographs. And that's really where we started. We talked about doing a book, but I'd been involved in the news industry and I was burying me. It just was no time to write books. And then last November, um, I basically retired from the news industry forever. And that's when I began. We began work on this. And I had talked to Jim about it some time before. And he kept contacting me and saying, are you still going to work on it? Because I think he wanted well, to it's because it. I had found out differently yeah. from a different, uh, mm -hmm. a different avenue. And I knew that I wanted to write the book mm -hmm. about it. But he didn't want to step on my toes because he, I had talked about it. Yeah. So in the end, I called him and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm out of the news industry. I'm free to proceed with this thing. I, and it's my first book. I have no experience in writing a book. And I said, why don't you do it with me? And, and so that's how we It's because I had already been doing books. Yeah, he's been doing and, books. Um, and, uh, we decided, you know, I found out because I met and made a friend of somebody from the Marine Historical Company. They do, they're essentially the history keepers of the Marines. They have the authentic uniforms dating back to the 1700s and they do the living history presentations. And he, just one day we were talking and he started talking to me about this event at Gettysburg and 
showing me some pictures he had. And that's how I realized uh, about the march and thought, you know, this is something very unique up there. I mean, given, even though they have annual reenactments, uh, they don't have it with real military. They don't have it with airplanes and tanks. They don't fire live ammunition, which these Marines were doing at times. And so uh, it was something very different for the battlefield. And I fell in love with the idea. Well, and set so the stage for it. It was 1922, so it was a couple years after World War I. Who was involved and how many people and why'd they do this? You want to take that? Or you? Well, every year, I guess, started in 21, I guess it was Smedley's idea, basically, was, uh, it was the commander of the Marine Corps. Um, they wanted to do something to promote the Marine Corps because a lot of political figures and some of the military wanted to shut the Marines down. Yeah, you said General Pershing wanted to shut the mm -hmm. Marines down. So they wanted to promote the Marine Corps, and uh, they decided to, to take their annual maneuvers and give them a theme and bring it out into the public eye, hold these things in public, you know, for public viewing. So they, in uh, 21, they started doing them, decided to do them with Civil War themes each year. Each year had a different Civil War. And the first one was Wilderness? The Wilderness. And then this was the second year. Was this was the one, of the four years they did it, Gettysburg was the one that was the furthest away. It was the largest uh, production that they had to put together mm -hmm. because they marched for, they were a week on the road going and coming. And that's about a 100 mile march, I think we calculated. I think, yeah, yeah, from where? From Quantico mm -hmm. up to Gettysburg. And they stopped uh, at DC, Bethesda, uh, Gaithersburg, place called Ridgeville, and then Frederick, Maryland, Thurmont, Maryland, to Gettysburg. Yeah, you, you write in the book about uh, their trip through Frederick, and according to the Sun newspaper, they were going to do a Barbara Fritchie reenactment, and right. Fritchie was considered a controversial topic in town. Though her name is a household word in every northern household, about half the people of Frederick never mention her name and scoff angrily whenever it comes up, the Sun reported. She's yeah. controversial in Frederick? or was Not that? anymore. She was then. I mean, Frederick, well, Maryland in general, was split as mm -hmm. far as northern sympathies, southern sympathies. And so Frederick was a typical town in that way, and she was very pro-northern. And so those with southern sympathies obviously kind of disdained her name. And they wound up canceling it before, right at the very last minute. They were ready to have her waved to the Marines as they left Frederick, like she did the Union Army leaving Frederick, and uh, they pulled that at the last minute. So how many soldiers were involved, how much equipment, and what was it like being in a, one of these towns to have this thing move through your town? Well, there's about 5,500 Marines, but you're talking about a lot of equipment. Yeah, there's um, a couple charts in there. I mean, it, the list is pretty extensive as far as number of trucks and vehicles, and then they were pulling handcarts. Tanks? They had six, no. six tanks, was it, or four, four tanks? Four tanks. Four tanks. How'd they keep from messing up the roads? The tanks were on trailers. They, oh. they, uh, and when they did have to lower them on the roads, they took the cleats off the, the tread so it wouldn't tear it up as much. Um, but they did have, they ran into problems. Like um, in Thurmont, when the trailer with the tank was trying to go under the Western Maryland Railroad Bridge, couldn't do it too high. So they had to get some thick... Uh, four by fours to use as rails, take the tanks off the truck, send the trucks under the road or under the railroad, 
then the tanks rolled under the railroad and then back onto the trucks so they could continue on their way. Why did they do all this? Was it for PR or P did they really well, learn Well, they needed, they were holding their military maneuvers, their annual maneuvers, which was for uh, to train. And they thought, well, while we're doing that, why don't we do it at a high profile location and we'll hold some public events at the same time. So they're promoting the Marine Corps and they're also training. They've actually fought for like nine days at Gettysburg, but only three were public. They, they fought over 16 miles. They were showing the public what they could do mm -hmm. and how valuable the Marine Corps was as a branch of the military, which is why they they did so much, uh, like we were talking about before the show started, with the movies that they showed. Um, they played baseball with the local teams. They invited people to come in and just look through the camp. So they advertised it and said, come on down oh, and see yeah. Oh, yeah. It was basically nationally advertised. Yeah, there's a copy of one of the ads in the book. How many people came to see it? The final, the big events in Gettysburg, they had 100,000. Um, I don't think I ever saw, as far as numbers, how many townspeople showed up when they stopped on the road and set up. You know, and they had to make a full camp each night. They were only each place one night, so they... They weren't there in one twice? Um, yeah, one place they yeah. stayed two nights. But they'd come in, you know, early afternoon, they have to assemble their camp then invite the public in, do their PR for that evening. And then in the morning, they'd have to break camp and head back out before, you know, by six. Well, when they were at Gettysburg, you said they were using live ammunition? The machine guns. But you had an audience. Well, that was the interesting part. The machine guns that they used, as far as the ground forces, couldn't fire blanks. So they could only fire live rounds. So what they did is they, first of all, they decided where to place them, and then they would dig berms up in front of them and then they used tracer fire to keep track of the rounds. And they were actually firing towards, in the direction of the high watermark where there were thousands of people standing, but they were keeping the, the, the bullets into the ground. Sounds the, risky. Sounds risky, you well, couldn't get away and, with that today. But <laughs> in a sense, they were doing it as a safety precaution. They wanted to see where their ammunition was going yeah. so that to use the tracers, they had to use live ammunition. So they were doing this actually on the grounds where the battle was fought? Absolutely, yeah. You know, the camp was on the Culp, Culp farm, which of course was involved in the battle. And then um, they, did they did three public reenactments. The rest were maneuvers, which were non-public basically. But uh, all three of them, they charged the high water mark. So they were reenacting Pickett's Charge. That was the only part of the battle that they were reenacting. They did two reenactments as it had been done historically. And then the third, well, on July 4th, they reenacted it World War I style. So they threw tanks and bombers and they were strafing the Union position. Yeah, you had, you had the Confederate <laughs> Air Force dogfighting yeah. the Union Air Force. Shooting down uh, helium-filled uh, observation balloons. They had dogfights? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. tell me about the shooting down the helium-filled air balloons. Well, they had observation, two observation balloons there, um, which they called kite balloons, basically, because they were always attached to the ground. They weren't free-flying balloons, but they were manned by two people, I believe, generally. And one was condemned by the Navy, so they used that one as the one to blow up. And uh, that was on July 4th, I guess, that they had that above the camp. Of course, they took wind, wind direction and everything else they could, you know, to make sure it didn't come down in the crowd because it was a full-size helium-filled balloon. Or hydrogen. Hydrogen-filled. Not helium. Hydrogen. So when they attacked it with the airplane, uh, the, the airplanes were firing blank rounds, but there was a guy in the basket who set the charge off. A dummy, it was generally reported, wearing a parachute was cast forth from the observation basket attached to the underside of the balloon while a second figure fell to earth without a chute. As the burning balloon fell to the earth, 
Somewhere on the west side of Seminary Ridge, along with the slowly descending parachutist, the crowd was stunned. Some believed that the figures were actually people and that one of them had fallen to a certain death. Well, who planned all this? Well, the Marines, their, their imagination, I guess. Uh, but apparently it was a live person who was actually in the basket who set it all off and then jumped and the parachute. And he was the parachutist. Yeah. And well, the dummy was, was the one that fell to There the were ground. several theories, but the most logical one and one that we found some evidence to support as well as the Marine Historical Corps kind of supports that one that there was a live Marine in there setting the charges off and then jumping very quickly. Uh, how, <laughs> how, how choreographed was the whole thing? Oh, they practiced for a week. They, they were taking units out and walk, doing walkthroughs. They were drilling them in uh, Civil War, you know, battle orders and such and firing lines. So they were taking tours of the battlefield and teaching what, what it was about. They really wanted them to know what it was they were reenacting and how to do it. So they spent a lot of time drilling, constantly rotating units. And, so it really did try to follow the actual moves yeah. of the yeah. 1860s. Plus, as they advanced, it, during the actual reenactments, they would hold flags up, which had the names of the generals that they were serving under in the charge, so the spectators would be able to sort it out and see. Uh, They'd know who to cheer for. Yeah, know who to cheer for. <laughs> uh, how, how'd they decide who, who got shot, who got wounded, and who made it to the I watermark. I don't. I think they left that to each unit, or they probably had. For a certain instance, photo. when they were doing the uh, the mortar simulation, where they how they did that, I forget. They fired something into the ground. Oh, they had a sh they had shotguns with black powder rounds in them, and they would fire directly, at, almost at the feet of the guys in, in the column. And so, of course, anybody, the spectators couldn't see it. All of a sudden, you'd have this huge white smoke uh, ground charge going off. And, and the so closest it. ones, had, the closest Marines, had to fall dead. Yeah. So it was that. If you just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, mm -hmm. like in a regular battle, you, you were declared dead for that. Was there any part of the park off limits, like sacred? Uh, well, you got to realize the military owned the park at the time. There was no, in, well, the NPS didn't own the military parks. So uh, they, they uh, restricted the battle reenactments to between Seminary Ridge and basically the high water mark. So it didn't occur anywhere else, actually on the battlefield. It was, we know it. I mean, obviously the whole region was a battlefield, but... So if you go on Pickett's Charge Field today, you, might you find shell casings and things like <laughs> that? <laughs> we, talk, we talk about that all the time. Yeah? It's like, gee, what, what's somebody going to think if they find a machine gun casing? There's got to be berms there full of um, uh, machine gun rounds from, from the reenactment. But, uh, How close did the spectators get to all this? They were, they were up on a high water mark. I mean, they were pretty much every, any place they could get to see it. So I guess... What was the road up there called then? It's not there anymore. It was Hancock or something? But that was, you know, there's thousands of people up there just on the high water mark. And they were everywhere. They were, they were up on the, the round tops watching. They had erected an, an observation tower for the president and his guests to climb up. Um, the park superintendent at the time got so into the historical reenactments um, that when the Confederates started to turn, he's like, get back there. <laughs> Rebs, <laughs> you know, he, he was into it. He was actually on Meade's staff during the battle. Yeah. Um, oh, were there? There's a lot of veterans there. There were. Mm -hmm. uh, that this had been 60 years since the battle, something yeah. like 59. that. 59, mm -hmm. yeah. And as they went through all these towns on the march up, they made sure to invite any veterans they met, mm -hmm. you know, to come up to Gettysburg as their guest, as the guest of the Marines, to see the reenactments. Mm -hmm. And. Um, You'll see a shot, there's a picture in there actually of when they're marching through Emmitsburg uh, around the town fountain and there's 
five, four or five guys standing in front of the fountain. Those were the living Civil War veterans in the Emmitsburg area who were there to greet the Marines as they came through their town. And you said President Harding was there? He, President Harding actually saw the Marines, or the Marines actually saw President Harding three times during that whole month-long uh, exercises. When they came up to camp that first night in D.C., after they set up their camp, they did a march <coughs> through the grounds uh, in front of the portico of uh, the White House, and so President Harding and the First Lady saw them there. Then when uh, the night of, was it the first, July 1st, the President came up to watch reenactments. Uh, they built an 18-room tent they called the Canvas White House for him and his guests. And he only stayed one night. He left the next night to go on to vacation at his hometown. And then when he was returning from vacation, a week or so later, the Marines were in Frederick on their way back. And he just stopped in because he heard they were there. He stopped in at the fairgrounds and you know, just said hi to them. Uh, they formed the band real quick to play them a couple songs. They you know, sat in the car and were serenaded by the Marine band. And, um, they talked a little bit. It was very, that one was a very informal meeting between the president and the Marines. And then he went back to D.C. I have to read you this one part. The Canvas White House was officially completed on June 29th with the installation of six porcelain bathtubs, which had been flown in, strapped to Martin MBT twin-engine bomber torpedo planes and flown over the mountains to Gettysburg. These are believed to be the first bathtubs ever carried by airplane. <laughs> Where did you find that? Maybe fact? the last. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it was you found that in one of the newspaper the Marine reports. Corps. Yeah. It's just uh, you know one of the perks of being president. They they piped water out to the to tent too, so they had running water, whereas the Marines were using the what they call the water buffaloes, the traveling showers that they took with them on their on Plus their. They telephone systems throughout the camp and lighting. And, uh, so it was pretty modern. For the times, yeah. Well, what was life in camp like? Muddy. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it rain. muddy. At least, it at least like, in Gettysburg. Yeah. It rained like for nine days. And oh. In severe thunderstorms in the evenings. And they won, one of the charges, they actually called the uh, Confederate Marines. They called them Pickett's Ducks. Because instead of going, giving the rebel yell when they were going across the field, they were qu all quacky. <laughs> And uh, the spectators thought it was a rebel yell. They didn't know any difference, but the Marines were having a little fun because they were basically sog soggy. They were worried about them actually getting sick uh, from being out in all that wetness. But, but they, uh, they they weren't confined to camp. I mean, they got liberty, so they would go into the towns where they were at the time and get some real food, um, <laughs> meet people, hitch a ride back to camp uh, to get time for reveille. They also had... Uh, um, you know, they had lots of kitchens on camp. They had the, like a commissary where they could get the junk food type stuff that they might want after a long march, candy, cigarettes, things like that. Um, you know, and it was casual when, you know, when they were off duty. They, like I said, they played baseball. They, um, they bet on the baseball games. You also have a section here on the, how they attracted the usual camp followers, yeah. that, that uh, <laughs> bootleggers and hookers. Oh, yeah. Um, there was a circus here in town that was a little bit 
I guess, controversial. But, it's uh, one of Rick's favorite sections. Well, it's <laughs> my neighbors, too, for some reason, because I live right behind where it would have been, I guess, in uh, Colt Park. But uh, one of the carnival uh, events, I guess you would call it, they had a, a tent that was rather risque, and it turned out that the girls were engaged in prostitution at it, and uh, they got caught rather quickly. And, and they weren't the only ones. I think they caught some in town, too. And the boule, of course, that was a dry you know, area. And um, so they uh, were always watching out for bootleggers, a few of them, and illegal gambling. That was many at the carnival. This is just a couple of years after World War One. Were there many World War One veterans a involved? A lot of veterans. Yeah, it was an mm -hmm. interesting mix. I mean, you had newbies, mm -hmm. and then you had decorated veterans. In fact, the two Marines who died in the plane crash, one was a highly decorated Marine veteran from World War One, the pilot. His gunnery sergeant was... I think he'd only been in about a year, so he hadn't seen uh, World War One action, and um, and they both died at the same time. And Hamilton was a twice award uh, the French Medal of Honor. Right, and he he was. They actually had him pose for a painting that um, of one of the battles he led a group through, and uh, so he he had a lot of. Uh, Prestige, and he got a lot of press coverage, and I felt bad for the gunnery sergeant because nobody ever heard of him. So, right. But coast to coast, they were talking about the Hamilton, of course, oh. World War One fame. And who was the boss of the whole thing? I guess it would be Smedley. When he, uh, who was he? Oh, you're the Smedley expert. He was the Marine Corps <laughs> Commandant at the time. He, I mean, he wasn't like the overall in charge of Marines. That would be uh, Lejeune, but he was the one that was running this expedition. And he had come up with the idea of doing the, the PR slash maneuvers in the summers. And so he, he pretty much had control, the day-to-day -day control. He coordinated with his superiors. And he traveled with the Marines, whereas Lejeune kind of met them at their key locations. Um, to, you know, he was with the, Lejeune was with the president when they walked by the portico. Butler was there with the president too, but he actually came off the portico and marched with his Marines for the review. And he traveled with them. You'll see him. There's a picture of him on a horse as they come through Frederick, Maryland. And he was riding with his Marines. So, Did they have many horses with them? Um, I forget how many. There was, I mean, they had a lot of everything, but they had horses, horses and mules. Horses um, were still an important part of the military. I think they, they were had after yeah. wilderness. After twenty-one, they were phasing them out because they had they used seven, a lot of horses in the wilderness. And by then, in Gettysburg, there was a whole lot less horses. So seventy they had horses. Carts. They had seventy horses, twelve mules, but then they had dozens and dozens of trucks and ambulances. And those carts that you were the quote. And carts. the hand carts for the the infantry. It was. Um, it was actually an advance that had been introduced during World War I um, to kind of make it easier for the infantry to march further where they would put their bedrolls in, in the cart and I guess you, I don't know how many you could put in a cart but then you only needed two Marines to push it for a while and you could rotate off and on and it kept the Marines who were marching from being so tired because they were carrying 90 pound packs and you could take off about half of that by putting it in the cart. And that, and that cut down the need for horses as well because now you got the Marines actually hauling their own equipment. Did the soldiers like this? Was it a fun thing for them or was it a... The march? Drudge. Or the, you're talking about the, the maneuvers? Thing, yeah. yeah. Well, they seemed to enjoy it. I, you know, uh, they were a little disappointed in Gettysburg as far as the town and people itself, but... Uh, How so? There's the... Uh, 
yeah, price gouging and uh, this, that, and the other. They weren't treated very well. Yeah, what was it with the parking? You had to pay like 50 cents to park, but it was so muddy that when you got stuck in the mud trying to get out of your parking space, you had to pay, what, a dollar for, no, the, like for three the, or more. Yeah, to get you to pull you out of the mud. <laughs> so the farmer would park you in the mud, then when you went to get your car out, he charged another three to hell around. <laughs> but by and large, so, they did really seem to meet, like meeting the people along the way. They had fun, you know, playing the games, things like that. They enjoyed Frederick so much the f coming up that they stayed two nights on the way back just to, you know, have an extra, extra time there. Yeah, to during the ball game, Fred, uh, Emsburg basically threw a party for them, a town-wide, declared it a holiday. They didn't get any of that up here. And they were, Why not? What's wrong with the people of Gettysburg? I have no idea, but they said they would never come back, and they never did. Was it good for the economy? <laughs> yeah. I think people, when people later, they said they had regrets later because I think when people added up their, their take from them being here, they kind of, like, well, maybe we shouldn't have been so hard on them, you know, or whatever, because they obviously laid a lot of, they were running out of food and everything else in town. From the, they were, and you had Marines actually making a choice to spend their own money. They would march back to Emmitsburg or hitchhike back to Emmitsburg rather than go into Gettysburg um, because they felt they were more welcome there. Well, I mean, you know, they get the Gettysburgians, they'd send out the state censors after them, and there's always one thing after another. It seemed, and, and they said they had never been treated anywhere like that, challenged like that. Which is a shame, because, I mean, it was a big event that, and... But in truth, they were never coming back anyway, because every year they were doing the maneuvers in a different location, so... So there are a couple yeah. other celebrities there. You said uh, Pickett's mm -hmm. grandson was there, and uh, Longstreet's, Longstreet's widow. widow. And Pickett's also wife was there, although they kept it under wraps, but there's enough accounts of her being there. That she was somewhere in the crowd. He had died by then? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about somebody else on here. You say Captain Osami Nagano. <laughs> now, who was he and why was he there and why was he significant? Well, they had a lot of military liaison from various countries around the world. I don't even know if I know the account, but a lot of South American countries and European countries and Asian countries. But the unique thing about him is after, you know, the advent of World War our involvement in World War II, was, he was the one that basically gave the order to attack Pearl Harbor. Of course, he's standing here watching military maneuvers and taking notes all the time. 20 <laughs> such, years but, before, you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, it was, um, they were all marveling at the Marines, you know, they were um, well known and such, and so a lot of military uh, figures around the world wanted to, to see them. And, uh, yeah, they had made their reputation in World War One. Yeah. <laughs> And you mentioned Lejeune, who was he? He was the overall commandant of the Marine Corps. And so he, because the Marines are a department of the Navy, they don't have like a, a cabinet position like Secretary of the Navy. But he, he would be the Marine version of that at the time. And um, so he was the ultimate head. And Smedley Butler was the one who was commanding one quarter of the Marine Corps as they marched up to Gettysburg, which is what it amounted to. But the June had uh, all of the Marine Corps to look after, so he, he was also watching out for the other three quarters and what they were doing while this one quarter was doing their summer exercises. Other groups were doing summer maneuvers other places. And General Pershing was there at Gettysburg? Mm -hmm. What was he doing there? He was Army, right? Yeah. Guest. He was a guest to the president. And there was a lot of governors here and a lot of statesmen, a lot of military. 
not just from the U.S., of course. But. And this is the person who wanted to get rid of the Marines. Right. Yeah. But the president shows up, you want to have your FaceTime with him. And yeah. of course, he probably, if he was that adamant, uh, he might have even been kind of downplaying what the Marines were doing. But we don't know that. But I mean, if he really wanted to sink the Marines, he would not have wanted to let them shine without some kind of rebuttal there, which he could have been. Well, let me ask you each about yourselves. Uh, James Rady, you have written a new number of books. I enjoy, uh, I've been writing, well, I've had, my first books were published in 1996. Those were young adult. But I've been doing history and historical fiction since 2000. I've really fallen in love with American history and finding unusual stories like this one um, or uh, different events that you don't hear a lot about. And, um, I like to explore them and, and write about them. I do a lot of articles that are history-oriented as well. Uh, so that gives me, for even little stories about interesting people I read about in the newspapers from 1800s, 1930s, whatever, or unusual events. Um, I'm writing one now for the Gettysburg Times about a group of high school students who outfitted a half-ton truck to carry 27 people across the country and then um, up to Alaska and then back for just a, it was a summer trip for this high school group. And it's an interesting story, but not something you're gonna read about in the history books, which is, but people like it, you know? And so there's lots of history like that. Now that, those are the stories I like looking for. Well, what is a canaller? Canaller, so that's, that's the title of my first historical novel, which was about a family boating on the CNO Canal that runs from Cumberland, Maryland to Georgetown. Canalers was how they said canaler sounded like when one of them said it back mm. then. So, and I liked that word so much that I thought, oh wow, this is definitely gonna be the title of the book because it stops everybody. They're reading it and they're going like, kun, kun, na, kun. Yeah. <laughs> so it catches the eye and twists the tongue. When you write historical fiction, what do you have to keep in mind to be true to the facts but still tell a good story? Well, there's a lot of different ways you can write historical fiction um, from, you know, say something like a Regency romance to a Western's considered historical fiction. I tend to center mine around either some kind of historical event, um, the canal during the Civil War. And then I start researching, because I do like to stick to the facts. Um, the reason I chose, for instance, to do the canal books as fiction was because there weren't uh, a lot, there wasn't a lot of information I could find out about how a family lived and worked, or at least one historical family lived and worked on the canal during the war. So by doing historical fiction, I can pick from multiple sources and combine it into one amalgamation of a typical family. Uh, that's where the fiction part came in. And then some of the stories that I wove around the actual events that happened on the canal. And I do like to stick to, as much as I can, how things actually happened during whatever the event I'm exploring. Um, as much as I can be nonfiction in it, in, a, in historical fiction, I like to do that. And um, just use the, the story to, to create the interest in the event or uh, the situation. 
Were you always interested in history? No, actually the canal is what really locked me into history. I biked it. It's a 184 mile uh, trip. And my wife and I biked it one summer, camped along the canal at hiker biker sites they had. And I had the little booklet, the uh, guide for the canal, and I'm reading about what happened at this mile marker or this lock house. And I realized, man, there's a lot of history that happened along here. Antietam, Harper's Ferry, uh, Battle of Balls Bluff, stuff at Georgetown. And then um, being a writer, it's like, well, what can I do with this? I mean, I want to tell, tell the story of the canal. How do I tell the story of the canal? So the most interesting time, at least that I decided on, was during the war. That threw some other elements into it besides just the railroader conflict and the fighting against Mother Nature and flooding and things like that. You also had war going on around you and things that happened with that. So I saw a lot of different story threads I could work with. And then I just started doing the research to see situations that actually happened and the, the interesting ones I wove into a story. Are you a full-time writer? I am now. Uh, or at least a full-time freelance writer. I used to, like Rick, I was in the news business. We used to work together for a small newspaper in Maryland. And, um, but it's since uh, 2008, I've been doing freelance writing full-time. That includes articles as well as books. How many books do you have out? That are still currently in print, I have eight nonfiction history books and five historical fiction novels. And I've got a few that are ebook only. How often do you crank out a new book? Maybe twice a year. Depends on the subject, how much, uh, how much I've had to have to research. I've done one as quickly as about nine months from start to finish. Uh, longest one's probably been two, more than two years to get it done. And the ebooks, do you publish them yourself? Yeah, yeah. And there's like some books I will have, I'll ebook format my novels and things like that, but some are just shorter topics that I'll put up as an, just an ebook only. And uh, Richard Fulton, you said you were a newspaper man? For much longer than I'd preferred to have been, actually. <laughs> I started off as, uh, actually, I started off with advertising paste up uh, in a newsroom, but then um, a vacancy came over for assistant editor. And, uh, Publisher asked me if I would take that position. So that, that's when I actually began journalism, which probably would have been like 83. What was the paper? Uh, Beacon in New Jersey, the Beacon. And I uh, stayed there until, um, I guess, 87, I was offered a, a position to be appointed as a spokesperson for the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. I couldn't turn that down, although I was hesitant because it's not the direction I wanted to go in. But I took that, I was with uh, Environmental Protection for about 11 years, then went with the US DOE for four in communications. Um, Did you still do writing on, on your jobs all the time? A lot of it, because uh, I did all the press releases. Um, well, US DOE, I was the director of communications for the Mid-Atlantic, and uh, but uh, 11 years at the uh, Environmental Protection, it was all communications, uh, either a spokesperson or writing speeches for the governors or newsletters for the governors or you know, whatever was needed in the way of writing, that's what I did. This is your first book? This is my first book. How did it come about that you two collaborated on this? 
again, it was because I, I knew he was interested, he knew I was interested, and he didn't want to step on my toes and go and, and do it if I was going to. So when I retired from all the news industries in uh, November, I uh, called him and I said, you know, this is my first one, I don't know exactly what I'm doing. And with his experience, I asked him, you know, would you come and do like what, chapters one, two, and seven? And he also did all the layout, which is a lion's share of, of uh, effort. And uh, that's what we, we did this in about four months, didn't we? I don't know. It, 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 went pretty smooth. Yeah, <laughs> it went pretty smoothly just because, you know, not only you and I working on it, at the same time, your wife was researching she pictures, was, yeah. finding pictures. For she was it. our research assistant. So while we're putting things together, she's finding more and just pumping it into us. And, uh, Where'd she find the pictures? All over the place. Um, Library of Congress, uh, Marine Corps. They were a big source, Marine Corps yeah, Historical uh, Society. Or National Archives. Um, a lot of, we would find a lot of, from newspaper clippings and we'd have to backtrack to whether it was AP or UPI or one of the you know, newsreel companies and try to find originals. And uh, We're still finding them. So You have a lot of aerial photography in this. That was, it was common at the time? Well, that was also part of, the, of their training was that was their combat planes taking the photographs. So, I don't know how common it was at the time, though, but like you said, they had 30 planes, and you know, so they, that was part of their training. And th they also had radio communications with the yeah. planes, which was... And that was the first. Yeah, unusual yeah. back then. Did they take movies? Yeah. Daily. They, mm -hmm. they would take their marches and how they were greeted in towns, things like that, and rush it back to D.C. to get processed, and then rush it back to wherever the unit was that night to show. So Plus about a day lag. Yeah, amazingly. We've been looking, hoping we can find some of it. And, mm -hmm. uh, Plus there was uh, the newsreel companies where they were like uh, Pathé and so yeah. on. They were filming, it was being shown all over the country. Could you tell the story you told before we started this about the movie theater in town complaining? Good. Uh -huh. Well, the Marines, wherever they traveled, wherever they set up, they had um, outdoor... Uh, I guess temporary. Uh, yeah, movie one, one of the pictures from Thermont, you can see yeah, the movie right. screen in the, in the show. So, so they had their movies every night, everywhere, everywhere they went. And so when they got to Gettysburg, they set it up routinely. By the way, the camp was located between the Virginia Monument and basically Colt Park and fronted on Emmitsburg Road. And uh, somewhere around the Lee Monument, they set up their nightly movie theater. Movies of them well, they also, exercising? They also got commercial films, so they were oh. showing uh, other films. Other than yeah, that's, we, what, that's what got the state censor involved. We saw one reference in a newspaper that they were showing cartoons. Yeah. So it was kind of like, you know, actually going to a regular movie theater. Yeah. So they, they um, apparently the local theaters, of which I only know one, but uh, complained to the state because uh, well, their argument was these movies had not gone through the Pennsylvania State movie censors, and thus been approved for showing. And of course, the reason, the real reason was they were diverting all these people from town to come out to, with them, watch the movies with the Marines and they're in a camp. Watch them for free. So in the end, the state censor, a representative of that office, showed up and uh, went on to the, the camp and confronted the Marines, saying that they had to shut it down, that they weren't allowed to do that until they had state approval to show the movies. And ultimately, it ended up with the Marines basically escorting them off the camp, telling them this is a military compound, you have no authority here. And they were asked to, were invited to leave, and they did.
<laughs> that was the end of it. <laughs> Not that they had a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Richard, I have to ask about one more line in your bio here. You've an established record as a lay professional paleontologist. Oh, yeah. What's a, what's a lay professional? A lay professional is a, per, is a person who's been published in the industry but doesn't make, that's not what they do for income, as, as you will. So I did, I've done a lot of field research on new species and new sites and uh, for fossils. Um, I guess the last big one was the largest early dinosaur site in Maryland I found uh, about 10 years ago that's, that USGS is named after me. And, uh, it's still very productive. We've taken like probably thousands of di uh, reptile tracks off the site and fossil fish and insects. And Where is it? Uh, Rocky Bridge. How'd you find it? Uh, a tip from the farmer, basically, or not the farmer, the, the family that owns Landowner. the Landowner. Farmer, yeah. It's, they they um, board uh, horses there now, so it's not a farm, but. Uh, well, so you got a tip. I had done an article on dinosaur tracks being found in the Emsburg area back uh -huh. in the 1800s. And she read that, and she thought she might have something similar on her site, and invited me down to take a look. And well, they weren't dinosaur, but they were definitely reptiles, definitely the same age. And so. Um, and you dug? Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, um, you had University of Oklahoma students out there this summer. That was Nebraska. We Nebraska. had two dozen uh, University of Nebraska students here this summer. Is it open to the public? I mean, can people go look? Only. Only if you contact me. <laughs> There's, no, it's closed to the public. You can't just wander on. How'd you get into that field? That seems a little different. Oh, I started as a teenager. I was basically raised on the uh, outskirts of Chesapeake Bay and uh, was always down there collecting shark teeth and stuff. I found my first new species, probably at 14, a new species of sponge down there. And um, established a record over, you know, over time. I've put stuff in the Smithsonian, uh, Los Angeles Museum of Natural History, the Chicago Museum. Um, I've been all over the country. Most of, most of my life was spent down in, in the South doing geology work and such. Is it always but I never pursued it as a career. Why not? I just liked writing. and uh, doesn't look good in the pith helmet. Yeah. <laughs> and I was constantly losing expensive rock hammers in the process. <laughs> so how, how do you find other sites? I mean, you found the one in Maryland on a tip? Yeah. Well... In college, my, my independent study was doing uh, work on uh, some of the geology of Pennsylvania and it resulted in some remapping at the state level. Of How'd you find the Gettysburg sites? That I, just following the Greeks. You know, you know the geology, you know, you're in the, you know what time frame you're in. All you need is the right, right rock type. And then with a little bit of luck, or maybe a lot of luck, um, a few years ago we found the only, the first fossils that were found in Gettysburg Borough was uh, remains of a skull of a giant amphibian from uh, early dinosaur and some tracks right in the borough. And some that's starting to work its way up to the State Museum in Harrisburg. Once you find it, can you age it and identify it or do you hand it off to somebody else? To no, I, I, how, uh, how do you know? Just years and years and years of doing it. I worked on a Devonian deposits in Maryland, or Pennsylvania, that was my independent study and uh, found a lot of uh, new species of certain groups of animals. And so I did the research papers and got published. And, uh, is it something you do on summer vacations? Or well, Alabama, it was basically every day around the clock. I ran my own geology supply house down there in the early 70s. And uh, so that's the only income I ever actually derived from anything related to it was having my own company. But I just never pursued it as a, as a profession. Do you still do these things? 
Yeah, yeah but again, yeah, we get down to the farm. Yeah. Do, do you sometimes rub up against uh, people who are PhDs in oh, yeah. paleontology? Well, I, and they all think, my life. Well, you're just a... <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never had any of them put me down because... Uh, you know, when you, when you, when a lay professional's probably discovery record is over the top <laughs> compared to the person that's judging you, <laughs> you know. So we finally got a museum in Maryland that's going to house all this stuff. That was huh? Bob's problem. Uh, yeah. Which one? It's one that uh, Peter Kranz with the Dinosaur Fund is involved in. We may have been looking for a home for all of these things we've been finding, and so a lot of it. And, uh, we finally got uh, another paleontologist has worked out uh, something where we can. Get it to. So uh, getting back to Gettysburg, the Marines, you said, were there nine days? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did, what did they learn from it? Did they accomplish anything? Well, they actually had classes in history. And the, you know, when they got there, like Rick was saying earlier, besides all the training and uh, practicing they did, they had an education in the Battle of Gettysburg and the tactics and strategies. Command and control yeah. was a big stress thing. Uh, for example, on uh, week, what we call the Battle for Hers Ridge was not a public event, and that, uh, and there was no civil war to it. They uh, fought over 16 miles and they threw everything into it. They even had reinforcements standing at the town square here to go in and back up the attack on Hers Ridge. Well, it started at Marsh Creek, and uh, they drove um, what was designated as the enemy portion of the Marine Corps. They drove them back to Hers Ridge, and they got stopped by a severe thunderstorm. And, so they halted overnight and then commenced again in the morning. But those were big events, and they were learning to deploy assets. So they were real. They were really learning how to fight a war or a battle, which was the there. maneuvers part of yeah. the, the time mm -hmm. up there. So it wasn't all. It wasn't all show. A lot of it was. Were they supposed to follow the the steps that actually happened in the battle? I mean, with different units going different places. Only for the public events. For the historical reenactments. Yeah. But the rest was just. When they, when they did the modern reenactment of the Civil War, the South won. Yeah, they had the most tanks. Yeah. <laughs> that wouldn't help in the Civil War if they had tanks. What was the dogfight like? They were just uh, just like you see in the movies. They were just staging dogfights. They had up to 18 planes at a time involved and attacking the Martin bombers. and uh, the, the balloon. The balloon. They were uh, yeah, tearing the balloon up. and. Uh, then they would come down, they would strafe the Union line and behind the stone wall and, uh, with the red, -a -tat 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 -tat, you know, the old. Uh, when, the nine, <laughs> when the nine days was up, what did they do? They walked back to? Marched all the way back, same way. They retraced their path. The only change was when they'd come up to Gettysburg, they'd spent two nights in Gaithersburg. But as I said earlier, they had such a good time that one night they spent in Frederick on the way up, they spent two nights there on the way back and one night in Gaithersburg. And uh, it did say they did enjoy the pool at the YMCA there because they were so filthy from nine days in the mud that uh, they took showers and went swimming and just relaxed for a day and had the largest outdoor concert ever given in Frederick. 135-piece band played for the public. So they, so they had quite a bit of free time during this. Seems like it. As you read through the accounts, um, once, seems like once they got the camp set up, they were pretty pretty free until they had to be back to camp by night. So they could go into town, uh, get a regular meal, talk to people, um, and then they had to be turned in by a certain time each night and get ready in the next morning to march out. 
Well, I have to ask you about this picture you have in here about the <laughs> ears, the, the big ears. What, explain about that. Why don't you take that well, one? You found it. <laughs> Pre-radar. Pre, pre um, the, the, the concept was that you put a big cone up towards the, the sky so you could hear airplanes coming in and out, and uh, you'd have a headset that you, so you could hear the incoming sound. And if you were really good, you could judge the distance and altitude, et cetera, just from, from the, the sound. That was the main, and you hear you know, troop movements. Uh, it's kind of like those old hearing aids you see yeah. in some of the movies where they're sticking the, old people stick the cones up to the. And these were used up into World War II in the Battle of Britain, they were even used. So they worked? So, yeah, apparently so. <laughs> so I hear, I don't actually know from experience. Now you have something in the back here that says, want to contribute to future editions. And you're not asking for contributions of money, but photos, letters, and things. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you hear from people uh, when this book came out? Did you start hearing from people? We've got a couple responses. Um, and we're still looking. Like Rick said, uh, we're still trying to track down newspaper photos. He's found some really good ones since the book came out that we're trying to find originals of uh, because you can't really reproduce in a newspaper image too well. But the photos, if we can find them, they'll, they'll be... Uh, we actually have a shot of the tanks attacking the Kadori house. And, yeah. uh, that was one of uh, the hallmarks or the high points of the um, July 4th right. reenactment because they actually rolled up to the house and blew a blank round of powder charge into the house and cleared all the Union Marines out in short order. <laughs> and you did find a shot of one of the things they did for authenticity was the, the dead, so-called, mm -hmm. were piled up in, in a line. And he found a shot of that. Mm -hmm. And you know it's not an actual battle photo because there's a, in the background you can see one of the monuments. <laughs> so it's from, from this reenactment that mm -hmm. they were stacking their means on board. What we're gonna do, we're kind of treating this as a living document. As we find things good enough to move in, we may swap out some photos. Come out with a second We have edition. too many of a certain type. And uh, Yeah, we've got a lot. You'll, there's more than enough shots of all the dignitaries in there. That, yeah, I'm tired of and, dignitaries, yeah, too many of them. And they're not interesting shots. No. They're just all the people in uniform standing around. Looking whereas pretty. the battle shots and um, the, air, the aerial shots, those are much more engaging, and we're trying to find more of those. And we found some newspaper shots of snipers, marine snipers, picking off. A, so we're hoping and, we can find those but originals. But they aren't yet good enough to put in. We have to get back to the original somehow or find them. And what's sad is a lot of those, when you try and contact newspapers, you know, about their photo archives from back then, they've destroyed them. Uh, I've done it for other books too, even as early or recently as the 1950s, trying to find originals. And you'll call them up and say, you know, ask them about their photo archives and do you have shots from 1950 or in this case, 1922? No, they've been destroyed. They, they did house cleaning at some time in the past and just threw it all out. And I mean, that's a lot of interesting history, local history, given that they're newspapers, a lot of local history that gets lost. I don't know how prevalent cameras were for back in this period of time for the average person. But I suspect there's a lot of photos in attics and albums that people don't even, aren't even connecting. And that's one of the reasons we put that notice mm -hmm. in the book is we're hoping somebody will you know, it'll make somebody think, oh, I saw something similar in Grandpa Joe's uh, scrapbook, and they'll dig it out for us. And because we're both interested in a broad period of history, if, if what someone finds and shows us doesn't turn out to be this one, but we're taken locally, 
it's probably still interesting. Yeah. And probably will find you know some future use. Might make a it. nice another book topic or <laughs> yeah. article for me. I, I mean, it could be cold party shots, you know, or something from the teens that yeah. nobody's seen. So you know, we rather we rather someone contact us and they'd be wrong about what we're looking at because then to lose it and not have it because it may have a different application for a different period of time. So we'd rather see it than not. And it's, it's nice yeah. to get the word out. Like the, the story I told you about the, the boys traveling cross country, that's a multi-part story I'm doing in the newspaper. And after the first one came out, somebody got a hold of me. He has an old scrapbook from one of the participants, had some great pictures in it and some newspaper clippings and things that he's, he let me borrow. And so that's an additional resource that I've now got for uh, as I go back and do the additional pieces of that article. And I'm getting some very little known history out there. What kind of shape was the battlefield in when they were done with it? Well, it had been farmed ever since the battle, so. Oh, was this an active farm? This was private property. After the? the, camp, the, camp, the from camp. This, from the Emmitsburg Road property. to uh, Seminary Ridge was private property. I don't even know when the park acquired that, but during this event, uh, that was all farmland that was being farmed. And some of the battlefield is still being farmed. So, that, you know, somebody said something one time in a, one of the message boards about the book. Is, uh, I wonder, those Marines, they, they messed up the undulations of the land. But I think plows had been probably had been doing that <laughs> for long before and long after. So. And it was certainly muddy after they left, but it, that mm. was rain and given their equipment, they churned it up a bit, but they from, were- From modern aerial photographs, you can still see some of the trails from where yeah. the equipment- uh, They tried as much as possible. Um, I saw in a couple of newspaper articles where it talked about that they were trying to take care, particularly when they went onto the battlefield, not to cause too much damage. Um, other than normal wear and tear of 5,000 Marines running across the field. <laughs> Being followed by tanks, right? But, <laughs> but you know, well, for instance, the, they take the cleats off to mm -hmm. not damage roads and things like that. And when they came to the battlefield, they, uh, the heavy equipment, they sent a different route to the camp than the lighter equipment. Right. So they Trying tried. to avoid, you know, damage, as much damage as they could. I mean, by the way, when they uh, arrived, a lot of the, or as they were arriving, a lot of this field was under crop. The Marines actually helped the farmers harvest the, the wheat to save it as they were setting up the camp. This is in July they did that? Yeah. Well, June. They started very, very arriving in June 26th, yeah. end of July. So this is your first collaboration together? You think mm -hmm. you'll do another one? We have another one planned over the winter. There's a cover shot in the back yeah. of the other. We want to do something on the other maneuvers that the Marines did. At other Civil War battlefields? Yeah. Mm -hmm. They did four in the 20s and three in the 30s? Yeah. With the arm they did the 30s with the Army mm -hmm. as part of the 75th remembrance of the Civil War. And then the four in the 20s were the, the ones they were doing to as public uh, PR slash summer maneuver events. So the plan is each chapter of the book will be a battle, each, a year. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for those. This is the book we have been talking about, The Last to Fall, and our guests have been Richard Fulton and James Rada. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.